Welcome to the Libertarian Institute. My name is Keith Knight. I am managing editor at the Libertarian Institute. I'm joined by Scott Horton, director at the Libertarian Institute. Scott, what's going on? How's it going, Keith? Thank you for having me. Happy to be here with you. It's fundraising time at the Institute. That's what's going on. And we have a book coming out December 4th, I believe, by Tom Woods called Diary of a Psychosis. Uh, you've read this, correct? Oh, yeah, I have. I've read them all. And okay, so uh, this is about the COVID hysteria. And is it all original writings? Is this Tom's collection of emails that he sent out at the yeah, time? Exactly. exactly. And the thing is, it just proves how absolutely heroic he was from the very beginning of the thing, you know, from March of 2020. And I don't want to give too much of the book away because... It's really a great read to get to. And I, if I tell you too much about it, I'm afraid that I'll kind of spoil it. But um, let's just say it's, it's uh, the libertarian movement's greatest opponent of the COVID regime. Oh, On yeah. His daily, you know, it's not every single email, but it's a, a very well-chosen sample of his emails that he sent out over three years. Well, yeah, over three years from, from March 2020 through uh the spring of 23 and it's really is incredible it is a draw dropping uh, jaw droppingly uh uh blood pressure raising kind of a deal man and it's the kind of thing that you'll want to beat everybody that you know over the head with including people who are already good on this and all, always work that you still are going to want to show it to them and then anybody in your life who you want to say, I told you so, oh my God, man, are you going to, I told you so the hell out of people with this thing. It's going to just be devastating for the other side's argument for all around. And in, in other words, it'd be great ammunition for those on the side of freedom against anyone who ever even thinks about trying to do something like this to us again. I love Woods's ability to actually grab a metric that we can falsify a claim on. So when someone says, well, we need lockdowns, lockdowns save lives, masks save lives, et cetera, Woods actually says, okay, well, this isn't just something inherently true built into the fabric of the universe. We can actually test this theory by grabbing two populations and uh, testing the all-cause mortality for both demographics. So the main example he uses is Florida and California. And he just digs very deep into that and says that even Florida, with a much older population, saw less overall all-cause mortality than California. Therefore, uh, we have very good reason to believe that all of these mandates, all these business lockdowns, all the suffering by the state was uh, not justified at all and can really uh, teach us lessons for the future. That's another great thing he has as a historian. He's always able to extract things that... Even though it feels like COVID was forever ago, we can still extract lessons uh, for the present. So you would think yeah. that, well, someone like Fauci or the scientist would surely, you know, have all these questions available. Well, just because he's the expert means he could have the ultimate bias. It's the equivalent of saying, well, we got to listen to only Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. They're the experts uh, along with the council on the CIA is the expert. So let's listen to George Tennant when he says that Saddam and Al Qaeda are basically pen pals. Uh, right. Tom Woods' book is brilliant. I can't wait to get my hands on it. It is like that. And it's not just Florida and California, but it's these two cities or these two counties right next to each other. These two states right next to each other that have conflicting policies at the same time and yet 
absolutely similar results of this kind of thing. Um, and it's just great to see, um, despite the horror of it all, it's really great to see someone getting it so right and so consistently. I mean, Tom essentially gave up covering any other issue for three years, almost completely. He just became, this is his thing. He was just on a warpath against. And thank God for it. And, and you know, he should be really proud too. It's it's a great book. In fact, here, I have it, don't I? See it right here? Now, Diary of a Psychosis. I think he said Diary it was his first book his... in like nine years. You got a handsome looking hardback right there. It's got the Libertarian Institute logo for you. Got a foreword, it says, by uh, Dr. J. Bhattacharya. You see? Yes. So we got experts too, people. You, you don't have a monopoly on experts. You lock down. We got the great Thomas E. Woods. And uh, yeah, this is one handsome looking book too. It came out really great. I'm really happy with the printing and everything. So what I want to do is, uh, before getting into the specific people at the Institute, uh, things you've learned from them, things you feel that uh, they are really valuable at bringing to the table when it comes to research on history, economics, foreign policy, philosophy, give me an idea of why you started the Institute and what the goal is. Well, you know, I started it originally because my very favorite libertarian, William Norman Grigg, was always flat broke. and I was pretty flat broke too. Um, although I cared less. I have one kid. He has five. Um, and uh and I just thought it, it was so crazy and incongruent to see a guy who I consider really to be the very best one of our movement, maybe the very best one of our society, um, having to somehow beg to write. And I thought, oh, I get it. You know what we do? We just make an institute, then we can raise money and it's not, doesn't seem so cheap. Like, Oh, give me some money. It's more like help support our institute. And of course, Sheldon Richmond at that time had just left the future freedom foundation and me and him had been good friends for a long time. And I thought, Oh, what a perfect little balance there where Will Grigg is the expercher. And then who had become really a great, you know, very libertarian and a real expert on local police brutality, abuse cases and stuff like that. And then you got Sheldon is, you know, a total jack of all trades when it comes to libertarianism, right? A historian and an activist on, on every issue under the sun when it comes to libertarianism, going back for decades there. Great anti-war guy, wrote books against the income tax, against government schools, against gun control. Um, and then now, of course, uh, with us, he's uh, put together his books about uh, Palestine, is coming to Palestine and and. His other book that we published is called What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And that's a takeoff from um, William Graham Sumner, who um, you might know him. He wrote um, How America Was Conquered by Spain, uh, about what he's talking about is how America became Spain by destroying them in the Spanish-American War and replacing them as the evil empire. Um, same guy had written, I guess, an essay called What Social Classes Owe to Each Other. And Sheldon, you know, it was a takeoff on that, what social individuals, what human beings owe to each other. And in fact, what he says with that is um, he identifies our libertarian, uh, our bottom line principle, Keith, not as the non-aggression principle, but the non-aggression obligation, that this is actually in a, 
almost in a way, I don't know, a positive writer. That's the way he looks at it. Like we are obligated to not aggress against each other, right? In the first place. It's not just a principle of what one should not do, but it's a principle that, of what one should not do to other people in that kind of sense, if that makes sense. Um, and, and anyway, that book is as good as any and or could be the best introduction to libertarianism that you ever read. I mean, it's really a fantastic book full of Sheldon's great essays, you know, going back over the years um, and covering all different aspects of libertarian thought and all that. So anyway, I'm just bragging about the greatness of Sheldon. The question was about the Institute. So I got Will and I got Sheldon and then I'm kind of a plumb line libertarian. I, Sheldon's known as sort of leaning left, but that's not really correct. He just identifies libertarianism as a kind of liberalism as opposed to a kind of conservatism. But as I said, he wrote a book about uh, homeschool and gun control and the income tax and stuff, right? So, um, but anyway, like there's people sort of misunderstand that. But anyway, and then he got Will is sort of is the former Bircher. And then I'm kind of a, just a plumb line guy, but also I only care about foreign policy, basically. So it seemed like to us that the three of us coming together and doing a little thing would have a nice little balance to it. And then, um, of course, the whole thing almost fell apart because about six months later, Will died. I only got to pay the man one time, 700 something dollars. Um we did put out a posthumous collection of his essays, um, which is great. The cover art, somehow I imagined this cover art for um, No Quarter, the ravings of William Norman Grigg. And I just had this perfect picture in my mind of what it should look like. And I described it to our, our artist friend who helps us with some things, but it was also a very good friend of Will's. His name is Scott Alberts. And he just, man, on like the first try or maybe second try, he just got it perfect. Like that was exactly what I had in my head. The only difference is he put a kitten on the guy's shoulder, you know, because he knew the guy like in a way that I didn't. I only knew him over long distance. You know, he's a good friend of mine for a long time, but they were like real personal friends. But like, so like the only adjustments were like, yeah, we put a guitar in the back. And I don't even think there were, you know, we made sure like the, yeah, the keyboard is like, bending under the weight of his gigantic paws right as he's like smashing away against the state and honestly that book will fuck you up man it is just incredible it is the craziest thing um any right winger who uh, you want to cure them of their love for the cops give them that man see if they can withstand william norman craig for 300 pages holy crap um, I'm so proud of my association with that guy. And I regret every day almost it occurs to me uh, uh, how much I regret uh, his untimely death. If he was around today, Keith, my goodness, man. Um, but anyway, look, I almost threw in the towel then and said, well, what the hell are we doing, Sheldon, without Will? And I don't know. And Sheldon said, look, man, you're not going to get another chance to do this. So just whatever, put it on coast and, and wait around, see what happens. I guess I was writing my book right then. I just, you know what? The day I finished Fool's Errand was the day that Will died. Mm -hmm. Believe that? Um, and uh, so anyway, well, I didn't like all the way finish it, but pretty much finished it and had to, had editing to do still. But I finished writing it that day, April the 12th, um, 2017. But anyway, um, I'm glad I listened to Sheldon on that because, you know, like since then, it, and it's come kind of slowly. I never had like a big rush to do this, but I've just had more and more people come. Um, you know, these great writers uh, like yourself have shown up and started palling around and made yourselves part of the Institute. 
uh, in the way that you have. And now it's grown into this thing that I like to think is, you know, pretty close to an equal peer with something like the Mises Institute. I mean, I think without Will Grigg and Anthony, I mean, pardon me, without uh, Robert Higgs and Anthony Gregory and with David Therogon, I mean, I think it stands, uh, we blow the Independent Institute away now. No offense, guys, but like, that's just Victor David Davis Hanson now, right? Like, I don't know. So, um, so we're doing good, man. We're, we've like, I think established ourselves as a pretty important part of the libertarian community. And, um, you know, as I like to brag about my radio show, I'm first to tell you that I don't have a deep enough voice and I don't have perfect diction and grammar and all the great things that you really need to be a great radio host, but man, do I have a great taste in guests and, um, and so it's all substance-based and it's all really about me learning things and you guys overhearing it and good enough for me, you know? And so it's the same kind of thing with this Institute that whatever, I'm just plugging along doing my same old thing, but man, do I have a great taste in libertarians to surround myself with or check out that masthead at libertarianinstitute.org. And that's really something to be proud of that any of these people want to have anything to do with me at all. And it's a lot of you. It's a whole bunch of you. And, um, and, and, and all people who are doing such great work that I'm so proud to be associated with you guys. So, um, I think, you know, it's really just great, dude. It's, um, I don't want to say it's an accident, but it was not deliberate in the sense that I had any idea that this is where we were headed with it. Um, and I don't know what the future holds, but, um, it seems like we got all of, all the energy in the right place and we got a great team. So so one of the things that I just love about Sheldon's work is uh, right at the beginning, he says, the equation is simple. Individual freedom equals social cooperation equals individual and social flourishing. One of the great scams that is constantly played is the attempt to say that freedom is people doing everything by themselves. Which, if you read the I Pencil essay, you realize that freedom is about a massive, wide network of cooperation, this web of cooperation, mm -hmm. where uh, everyone is always affected by what other people do. The question is whether it's voluntary or whether it's coercive. So Sheldon Richmond does such a great job because humans are social animals. In mm -hmm. order to survive, they have to cooperate with others. So by pinning this as a Robinson Crusoe, every man for himself philosophy, we totally turn people away. Sheldon's ability right. to flip that on its head and say, this is about cooperating with people, not where one person claims right to own the body of another or make legislation on behalf of millions of strangers, but it's about cooperation. I think that's so valuable. And yep. then the one thing I learned from Will Grigg was, so there's a fake Stalin quote. I'm almost sure it's fake. It's something to the extent of one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Now, what Will Grigg's ability to do was to bring that one tragedy to life on the libertarian side. So the state will constantly, you know, use one tragedy in order to really evoke our emotions, in order to justify the Patriot Act or the next mm -hmm. war based on lies. So what Will Grigg does is it's not enough to say, you know, 10,000 people were arrested for marijuana. That's hard. That's so hard for the in individual to really grasp that and see how unjust it is. Will Grigg walks you through the process of, they, the cops got up extra early that morning. They kicked in the door. They pointed the gun at this little daughter's face. And as you're walking through it, you go, 
this isn't just a thing I'm against. This is pure evil that we need to stay strong against. So those are my great lessons from Sheldon and Will. Unfortunately, I never got to meet Will, but I read that book. Anything else on Sheldon and Will, the people you founded the Institute with? Um, no, not for now. Just that that they're really great. And, you know, we do have someday we're going to get to this man i'm not exactly sure what's the hold up but we do still have one more book of wills that we want to publish that is a collection of essays and it's called the stolen life of christopher tapp and it's about this poor guy who was just completely framed and and um railroaded in idaho for this horrific murder of the girl across the street that obviously you know some kid some random kid couldn't have done it was a a real monster of a serial killer of a criminal out there who had done this deed and they pinned it on this poor kid from the neighborhood man and um gave him i think at first the death penalty and was commuted to life or maybe it was just a life sentence and will just showed how this was such a frame up and it was so not true and then right after will died the guy was vindicated and a lady got on the stand and talked about how the cops said they were going to take away her baby if she didn't lie on the stand against the guy. And then they did a DNA. Somehow the DNA thing came through and it identified a guy they already had in the database um, who was already convicted of another absolutely horrific crime like that and who was already in prison. And so even then, they made tap plead guilty and admit what he'd done in order to let him out even though they knew they didn't do it this was like the final absolute proof of his absolute innocence never mind some reasonable doubt we know now for a fact who did it instead of tap and they still made him say yes your honor yes your honor i'm the evil guilty murderer so that they would say okay well we'll give you your clemency now and let you go ahead and go home and then i'm very sad to report that now just 6 years after that tap died uh they said he fell and hit his head a few weeks ago um after just 6 years free after that terrible injustice but so you know will's reporting was vindicated right after will died and then Unfortunately, Tap didn't get to live a very long life after that, but it goes to show what a heroic uh, a figure Will was. As you said, going after these individual stories, as effective as they are, as you say, like in an emotional way, it was important for him to that these people would have a chance to have justice and be free and have strangers know their side of the story, what happened. I know you're a little bit young for this, Keith. You're somewhat familiar, but you know, certainly in my era growing up, news about your town, it just comes from the local TV news stations. And they are all essentially just direct spokespeople for the police department. Their point of view is always what the police tell them to say about everything. And so if you're on the side getting your door kicked in, whoever is going to tell the people what you went through? And so it was always so important to him to make sure he was going to do the telling of that story. And there's so many people who are not criminals, but who are treated by criminals by our criminal state. And that was his point. So, um, yeah. And then look for Sheldon, 
you know, his book Coming to Palestine is probably the most important primer that you could read for people who are new and interested in the Israel-Palestine issue. It's just fantastic. I mean, the guy was raised Jewish and Zionist, knows every little bit about it. And then the reason he changed his mind and became uh, anti-Zionist is because, one, he's a libertarian, and two, he learned all about it. And so his by libertarian, I mean his conception of humanity is that we're all individuals and we got rights and that's it. And so he, uh, he's not into all this tribal whose side are you on stuff. He's into who's the aggressor and who's the aggressed against. That's how libertarians uh, divide people up. You know what I mean? And so when he learned the reality of what the Zionists had done to the Palestinians in order to create that state and in order to maintain it since then, and including and especially the occupations in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. He just, man, he learned everything he could about it. And he's written about it, you know, in, in various publications over 30 years, 40 years. And it's just fantastic stuff. It's just absolutely fantastic stuff. And, you know, the, the first essay in there is depopulating Palestine, dehumanizing the Palestinians. And it's just... Yeah, read it and weep, boy. You might not have known what that was really about, but now you do. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, welcome to Sheldon Richmond's world. Read Coming to Palestine. You know what? While we're on that topic, I will just give the brief story of how I came across uh, the reality of this issue. So I was also raised Jewish, bar mitzvah, and had always thought, well, we have two countries here. We have the country of Palestine, the country of Israel. They've been at each other's throats forever. While doing some research on this topic, I came across Zeev Yabatinsky's article titled The Iron Wall, published in 1923, where uh, he was a uh, member of the British... Uh, Mm, he, he was in the British military, but he was in part of uh, the Jewish section, and he started the Jewish Defense League in Odessa. And the subsections are colonization of Palestine, agreement with Arabs impossible at present, and Zionism must go forward. This one stood out to me. He said, voluntary agreement not possible. There can be no voluntary agreement between ourselves and the Palestine Arabs. My readers have a general idea of the history of colonization in other countries. I suggest that they consider all the precedents which they are acquainted and see whether there is one solitary instance of any colonization being carried out on with the consent of the native population. There is no such precedent. The native population, civilized or uncivilized, have always stubbornly resisted the colonists, irrespective of whether they were civilized or savage. So here I am thinking we have two separate countries at war. Little did I realize that this was actually a colonization process, something that if you would have just asked me independently, is colonialism okay? Some people invading a territory, confiscating the land, and violently imposing martial law and things like the Dare Yassin massacre. I, I had never known this. So that was my introduction to, uh, to, to this issue. Takes a lot, but yes, coming to Palestine is a uh, g great intro for uh, anyone. Uh, it's a collection of articles from like uh, 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so moving on. We have a, another book that came out recently titled The Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger by Joe Solace Mullins. What mm -hmm. do people need to know about Joe Solace Mullins? Well, first of all, he's an Austrian school economist, which means he's as capitalist as you can get without just bursting into flames or something, I guess. Um, he is a completely free market, Misesian, 
and I believe Rothbardy, and I don't want to speak for the guy, but certainly he's a Ludwig von Mises guy. Um, he's written some really great uh, economic articles for the Mises Institute as well as for our Libertarian Institute. And I think I pretty much succeeded in poaching him away from McMakin and the boys over at Mises by now. Um, not all the way, but I'm I'm very proud that we published his book, The Fake China Threat. And that's actually how I first found him is essays that he wrote at Mises about, you know, China's strength being overblown by American hawks. And, you know, he has just made a real hobby out of reading every book by every China hawk, which is a lot of them. I mean, it's in the conservative movement, in the national security kind of Washington Times sort of side of the Republican Party media apparatus. Demagoguing against China is a big deal, and it has been for quite a while. And um, so he's read them all. He's very familiar with all their takes, and he's very familiar with why the China threat is vastly overblown. Now, you can see in the subtitle there, it's called a fake China threat, and it's very real danger. Because he does acknowledge, of course, that China is a powerful empire. It's already, in fact, that's one of the things that's weak about it, is it's already an overextended empire. If you look at its you know, struggle to maintain control in Tibet and Xinjiang and the rest, you know, um, they have their problems as it is, but they do have nuclear weapons. They do have a powerful naval force and they are a very nationalistic culture who can be provoked to, you know, who knows what, but let's not mess with them. Unlike bin Laden's Islamo-fascist caliphate, China actually does exist and have an armed force that at the very least, in a real war, could get their licks in. I don't think they can come to California, and I don't think anyone should ever be concerned that they could invade North America. But could they keep America out of the Pacific in a real war? Certainly over Taiwan, for example, absolutely they could. And all the war games say that if we were to go to war with Taiwan, go to war with China over Taiwan, that we would lose. And we would lose so many ships and planes in the process, Navy and Air Force and the rest, that it just couldn't possibly be worth it. The, the time for America to have figured out a better solution to that problem um, or while declaring or else or something has passed, right? At this point, the Chinese have the ability to take Taiwan if they try hard. And, not, and, and as Joe says... We should not be giving them a reason to try hard. And we should be explaining to our Taiwanese friends that they ought to also not be declaring independence or picking any fight that we cannot win for them, certainly at this point. And that's just one part of the book. But um, just to say, you know, it is, it's called a fake China threat. But then, as you know, you can see the subtitle explains, this is not written out of utopianism and naivete. He's warning that America could pick a fight that could be very, very difficult to win and that could cost us dearly and, of course, ultimately could lead to the absolute destruction of our society. I mean, two or 300 nukes, and they have about 300 nukes and, and counting. Supposedly, they're expanding now. They have at least 300 operational hydrogen bombs, which means certainly they can destroy a hell of a lot of our military assets and including a lot of our major cities if it comes down to it. And that ought to be deterrent enough. That ought to be enough that Americans, um, you know, have a consensus that 
you have to make sure that somehow the West and Chinese civilization survive together on this planet for the next 10,000 centuries. Or what other choice do we have? You know? Check out libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. Links will be in the descriptions of everywhere this is being streamed. Another book that came out recently, Questioning the COVID Company Line, Critical Thinking in Hysterical Times. What does the audience need to know about Lori Calhoun? Well, first of all, she's a brilliant genius and a fantastic writer. And, um, you know, she has written, uh, I don't know, four or five books before, but including We Kill Because We Can, which is all about the terror wars and especially focusing on the drone wars. And, um, and this book is a collection of her essays. Now, this is not her, her live email list the way Tom did it. But these are her essays that she wrote for the Institute starting in the summer of 2020. And um, and they're just great. I mean, just like with Tom Woods, it's she has right to really be proud of being way out ahead on debunking all of the claims of the, call them the war party, whatever, the germ party at that time, the lockdown regime agenda. And she just debunked every bit of it. And she, you know, is a world traveler. I think she was in Austria when she got COVID and was sick for a few days and then was all right again. And then, but she was able to see the absurdity of the lockdown regimes, not just in America, but around the world in different places too. And wrote all this, you know, great collection of essays for the Institute all about it. So we put that out, I think in July, it came out earlier this summer uh, of this year. And, um, it's just fantastic. It's and you know I hope we can find a way to promote it alongside Tom Wood's book um, at the same time because um, they're both equally great. I mean, there's you know, and I mean they're as um, as excited as I am about Tom Wood's book now. I was about hers in July and really still am. I mean, it's just really great, and I hope everybody will read it and and um, and. And really read all her essays. She writes for us, uh, what, three or four times a month usually. And all of her, two or three. And, and, but all of her essays are just fantastic um, on especially foreign policy stuff, but on everything. So we're really proud to have Lori. And, um, and uh, yeah, she, I guess, formerly was with the Independent Institute. I'm not sure if she still has any association with them or not. But she's been around a libertarianism for a while. And... Um, and really does, you know, such great work. So, um, yeah, that's, um, I guess that was, um, book number nine for the Institute that we did in July. And then, um, Joe's was our 10th. And then right now we're doing, we talked about Tom Woods is coming out, but we also have your book and, uh, Jim Bovard, and that's 11, 12, and 13. So we'll have 13 books under the Institute banner here within a, mo a matter of days. Tom's book is scheduled to come out on the 4th of December. Um, yours and Jim's are going to come out as soon as we can get our printers to answer an email and do the stupid things that they're supposed to do. I always think of Homer Simpson when he's tripping on uh, insanity peppers and he's kicking the turtle. He's going... When I'm kicking you, that means hurry up. <laughs> That's me. I'm Homer Simpson kicking the turtle. Go, God damn. Um, very, 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 very soon, we will have Tom Wood's Diary of a Psychosis, 
Jim Bovard's Last Rights. Now, in 94, he wrote Lost Rights, The Destruction of American Liberty. Fantastic book. This one, 30 years later, almost 29, is called Last Rights, The Death of American Liberty. Uh, the great sequel. And this is the author of Freedom in Chains and Feeling Your Pain and the Bush Betrayal and Attention Deficit Democracy and Public Policy Hooligan and the Farm Fiasco and the Fair Trade Fraud and all of his great books. Uh, the wonderful Jim Bovard. I mean, he really is our most accomplished journalist, libertarian, really, that we have. Uh, writer for all the biggest papers for decades now, since at least 30 years. I, I think since like the late 80s um, or mid 80s. Uh, he's been writing for, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, USA Today. He's now at the New York Post. Um, and I'm leaving out others. I'm not sure, like, the whole list. But um, Playboy Magazine, I know he used to write a lot of stuff about Waco and other things for them. Um, so anyway, he's now primarily at the New York Post, although he's also still on the uh, uh, board of contributors at USA Today. See what I mean? He's a real big shot, this guy. And, um, so his book is coming out and again, any day now, as soon as we get an email, uh, confirmation of a thing, I'm pulling the trigger and making it happen. So that'll be out, you know, as soon as possible, I promise. And then why don't you tell them all about your new book, Keith? Well, my previous book was The Voluntarist Handbook, a collection of 50 or so essays that took me from being a progressive to being a libertarian. I wanted to this year, right? You did that this spring. That was July of 2022. So oh. that was that was more than a year ago. So okay, what, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Sorry, go ahead. What I wanted to do was make a very short summary of the book that I wish I would have read when I was, you know, 14, 15, or 16, and really just getting into politics. I had read I had reread, gone through tons of notes from previous books that I read and tried to really pin this down. The main things would be arbitrary divides that progressives constantly engage in, the double standard they have for the state, the contradiction of saying you're anti-war while advocating a state have the ability to tax, have a central bank, which gives them frequently the ability to conscript people to perform labor against their will. They have a compulsory education system, which makes people pledge their allegiance to the state and justify state crimes more than anything else. And there's a legal system, which the state monopolizes, which means that when you have something like Joe Biden murdering 10 or so civilians on August 29th of 2021, there was never a discussion about, oh, you think Biden's going to go to jail for this? No, of course not. So this legal double standard that once the state monopolizes law, they, of course, have no incentive to apply the law consistently or have a real solid moral foundation. So those are some of the reasons that I'm no longer a progressive. I'm trying to get it down to a real uh, slim book. My final page count is 105. So it's supposed to be a nice brief introduction into uh, the ideas of why I was a progressive and why I no longer am one. And I believe you're muted. Yeah, I sorry, I always do that. I didn't realize that you had... Um... Uh, got it down to just 109. So that's good. That's a nice brief little deal. And then, um, and what a great title. Did you say the title? I don't think you said it. Did you? Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism. Can you put the cover art up for people? You know what? I don't believe I can just because I uh, don't have it uh, into the site. It's just not available. But I will make sure it goes far and wide very soon. Okay. Um, good times. 
But, uh, but, but yeah, the whole purpose is the last book was 318 pages and it's hard enough to give, get someone who disagrees with you to read your material already. Yeah. So I wanted something so short, so sweet, every single page. I want to be able to flip to something randomly and say, just pick a paragraph. Tell me not that I've convinced you and you admit you've been wrong for 15 years, but tell me this is at least a point worth considering. That's why I wanted to make it so short and right. sweet to incentivize people who disagree with us to actually read the book. Okay. Well, I can vouch for the cover art and the cover artist that this book is one handsome looking son of a gun. You guys are going to love it, dude. Just from the cover art alone, you're going to want to see how I keep my, uh, all the, all the books I publish. I keep them facing out on the shelf behind me there. Stacks getting, Oh, there it is. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Everybody's going to want to keep that on their shelf facing out. So that all their left-wing friends and right-wing friends and libertarian friends and everybody that comes to their house, all their coworkers and family members will look at that and go, what in the world? Oh, I love it. Domestic imperialism with all a bunch of horrible, evil, commie, ra I mean, progressive Democrats on the front like that. It's just great, Keith. So proud of you, man. Well, thank you so much. I got the idea of reading a book by Auburn Herbert where he was talking about, look, if the British want to be consistent, we wouldn't want to be ruled. Well, we should probably apply this consistently to the Irish and to a number of African colonies that we have. However, let's not get too uppity just because we are the anti-imperialist movement. If you advocate a state coercively controlling millions of strangers, that is not much different in principle than yeah. uh, whether you're being ruled by Moscow, Washington, D.C., or Beijing. Well, if it's outside of your consent, if it's not two consenting parties engaged in social cooperation, that is a process of imperialism. What if it's your neighbor, someone so close to you, and they threaten harm against you if you don't do what they say? Well, that too is imperialism. The fact that imperial empires tend to be very far away from the people they are subjugating that makes no difference at all. So that's yep. where I got uh, the, the idea for the title. It's such a great title. It just rings so true. It's just great. And yeah, I mean, look, anybody who's familiar with the U.S. Constitution knows that it doesn't describe the government that we have right now at all. Uh, it couldn't possibly be, you know, take that Article 1 and just either erase all of the words and just imagine whatever you want in place of it or just pretend that the general welfare clause means that there are no limits on any idea congress might ever have come up with or whatever and you have to just pretend um and so you know sure of course it's a, a domestic empire it's exactly what it is that's why it's so great that you have fdr on there the great dictator president for life roosevelt who um He's, you know, Wilson would have liked to introduce, you know, implement the entire Philip Drew agenda, but it was FDR who really got it done. Unfortunately, yes. Next up, we have Kyle Anzalone, our news editor. Tell us, uh, tell the audience about uh, Kyle Anzalone. Well, I'll just start with a rhetorical question. Isn't he great? I yes. love Kyle. Yeah. Man, I'll tell you a story about Kyle. I says to Eric Garris, at antiwar.com, the boss. I says to him, I says, listen, man, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't be the opinion editor of antiwar.com and write this book. And this is in 2016. I'm like, man, I'm trying to write 
this Afghanistan book and you're just killing me because working for Eric as opinion editor, it's not like, oh, here's even 20 articles I need you to read in the morning. It's all day long. I need you to read this. 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 Well, you try writing a book under those conditions, man. It just doesn't work. I, I was just getting nowhere. And and that's and I already have that. I already was running the institute and had other jobs too. And of course, my show and all the rest. And I said, I just can't do it, but I got a replacement. Don't worry. And Eric just starts screaming at me. Damn it, Scott. That's it. I'm closing antiwar.com. We're going out of business. I can't do it without you. How am I? No one in the world can do your job choosing our views for antiwar.com. I'm going to have to ask. I'm going to, no, that's it. Um, you're fired. I'm, I'm mad. I'm quit. I don't know what I'm going to do. I go, wait, just wait, 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 wait. Trust me, man. There's only one guy that I would ask to do this job and that I would ask you to have do my job. And I would not, you know, put someone unqualified in this spot. The guy I have in mind, I promise it'd be fine. And Eric is just like, I hate you, Horton. Like, I can't believe you're doing this to me. This is never going to work. He's just so mad at me. It's probably the most mad at me he's ever been in 20 years. And uh, and then I put him on the phone with Kyle. And, and then, like, after an hour, he calls me back. He says, I love this guy. He's way better than you. <laughs> he's going to be great. And I'm just like, I told you. And then, so that was it. So Kyle's been opinion editor of antiwar.com ever since. He was supposed to fill in for me for, like, three months. And then that's it. I kicked myself upstairs. Now I'm the editorial director and, and he is the guy that does all the work. And did you uh, ask Eric what he asked Kyle in order to get some, you know, a oh, bird's eye view I into why know. so they just talked about the news and I, they just talked about the news and what have you, I guess, but just, he could tell mm -hmm. Kyle's such a wonderful guy. Not like me. He's, he's just like pleasant to talk to and everything. You know what I mean? So Eric was just like, Oh, I love this guy. And I guess Eric, you know, he's a clever type. So he sent, I'm sure he sent Kyle some articles that had some real flaws in them. And then it was like to, as a test to see whether he would find what the flaws were. And of course, you know, me, I gave Kyle a good thorough inculcation on, I am the editorial director. Uh, I gave him a good thorough inculcation on what it means to be antiwar.com's opinion editor and what exactly his job is, including on the page and keeping off of our page and all of those things. So he had a good idea what he was doing by the time I introduced him to Eric. Anyway, so he's the opinion editor at antiwar.com. I'm supposed to be talking about the Institute right now. He's the news editor at the Institute and, um, and opinion editor at antiwar.com. But he does such a great job doing the morning news roundups. But then he also, like Dave DeCamp, he, and he's, you know, sort of deputy at this at antiwar.com as well. He does these news summaries like Dave does at antiwar.com. Kyle writes up these great news summaries for the Institute every day as well. And then a lot of those run at antiwar.com also in the news section there. So he really is, you know, wearing two hats all day long. Um, at both institutes and doing such a great job. And then, of course, he's the host of Conflicts of Interest, which is most often with Connor Freeman as uh, his sidekick on the show there, who is, you know, I'll go ahead and segue into Connor right now. Connor <clears throat> is another young guy like yourself 
who, um, you know, is basically an antiwar.com kind of guy, um, who uh, came around. He is now basically my right hand man helping me with everything. Uh, as far as running my show, I guess I should say Harley, uh, runs all the technical stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, Connor's a great help to me, uh, on the show and, and, all my scheduling of different events and different stuff I got to do. And he writes great articles for um, the Institute on a pretty regular basis, as well as he does. And I mean, opinion pieces, but he also does these news summaries with uh, Kyle, as well as co-hosts conflicts of interest with Kyle as well. And both of those guys are just great, man. I couldn't be more proud of, I got uh, Kyle corrected me. I thought he was one of them, but I got this whole group of uh, 27 year olds um, Kyle's actually 33, he said, but, um, I, I'm my mistake there, but, um, you're 27 and Connor's 27 and Hunter Dorensis is 27. And we got Patrick McFarlane is only like 31, I think. Um, so that's almost 27. I used to be 27. Those were the days, man. Anyway, um, so tell us you're so lucky that you're 27. Anyway, so we got this whole group of you guys, you young guys, this kind of new young generation. So I already talked about um, you know, Bovard and Calhoun and well, Calhoun's Lori's my same age, I think, mid 40s. But Jim is a little bit older and of course we have Ted Galen Carpenter um is our uh, refugee from Cato. He was their best foreign policy guy at Cato, too good for them, so they got rid of him. So now he writes for us and for antiwar.com as well. And man, he's written a ton of great books and he's just fantastic. So, um, so Carpenter is the gentleman who was, uh, so good on NATO expansion, even before Russia went into Ukraine in February of 2022, right? This is, uh, the, the well, same for, for 30 years, man. Yeah. From the very beginning, I bet even during the George HW Bush years before Bill Clinton, I know for a fact, I can, I can prove to you right now that he was good on this as early as 94. But I bet you he said anti-NATO expansion stuff in 93 or even as early as 92, 91, 90 when the Soviet Union was still in the process of falling apart because that's when the Americans were meeting with the Soviets and making all their promises about how they're not going to expand NATO. They're going to do the partnership for peace instead and all of this stuff. And I would just be amazed if there's a if there's a reason that Ted didn't write about all of that, even during H.W. Bush. It's just because he had not quite got clued into the subject matter yet. But I know that he has been 100 on it since 1994 and um, and all along predicting absolute catastrophe over NATO expansion. And then if you want to get more recent in the last two decades, especially since the W. Bush years absolutely been fantastic in predicting um consequences over intervention in ukraine whether from the orange revolution and you know through the barack obama coup d'etat in 14 through the trump years and and all the weapons sales and all of the russia gate hoax uh hemming in trump's decision making and all of that stuff I mean, he's just man you can't do better than to carpenter on america's eastern europe policy and that is a part of why they got rid of him is that he was too good and making them look from what, from their point of view, uh, what they considered to be bad. And so they uh, wanted him out. So we're so proud to have him. And then, so that, I just think it's a great balance that like 
we got a few of these older guys as our senior fellows. And then we got, you know, me and Lori are kind of in the middle here. And then we got all you young whippersnappers who promise to do such great work for the next generation, you know? So, um, it seems like a, a pretty good balance, pretty good form to our Institute as we set it up so far. Tell us about Ted Snyder. Oh, so Ted Snyder is great. And I ain't going to lie to you, man. I think, you know, to us, he's kind of a commie. He's really, I don't mean that. He's really just a progressive, you know, he's a Canadian and a progressive, but we share him with antiwar.com and he's just such a brilliant genius and such a great analyst that, um, and all he writes about is foreign policy stuff. So we've gone ahead and made him a fellow and and uh, run half his articles. Antiwar.com runs the other half. I guess that's not true. He also writes for Responsible Statecraft and a few other places. But I'm telling you, man, like Keith, I don't know if you pay much attention to, to Ted, but if you haven't, like just between you and me and also everybody watching, he's really good. And he is absolutely worth reading every single essay that he puts out for the depth of his understanding of what he wants you to get about what's going on around here, and particularly on Eastern Europe stuff. He's this really, really fine, granular detail. Um, you know, I don't know what to say. The only thing negative I could say is sometimes it's a little bit redundant only because he, I agree with, I'm, I'm glad he feels obligated sometimes to carry some of these facts from the last couple articles forward to the next couple, because they're just still so salient. He's not willing to put them aside yet. You know what I mean? So you might see something a couple times, but it's always on something so important. So, you know, we're really proud to have him. And it, yeah, he's another that we share with antiwar.com as well. Tell us about Patrick McFarland, the Justin Romando fellow. Well, so Patrick is essentially mostly a podcaster. He's also a writer. Um, he, I actually hadn't heard that one yet. Uh, the Epstein thing. I didn't realize that he had done an Epstein thing here, Keith. Um, I'm sure it's fantastic. He's a great journalist and a great libertarian. Um, he got a lot of attention earlier this year when he did a special all about the truth about Oppenheimer and the radioactive, uh, you know, radiation experiments that they did on innocent civilians and so forth. Uh, uh, coinciding with the development of the atomic bomb. And, um, sorry, I should have muted the mic for that. And, um, yeah, and he's just a brilliant genius. He's a lawyer. So he, he just absolutely knows what he's talking about. I'll tell you, um, not to like get too far into the detail, but I was doing some research for my book and I got into the weeds of some real legal document stuff where I was like, oh man, I really need a hand here. So I called my lawyer friend. Yeah. And uh, Patrick helped me go through and and he concluded the same thing as me. He agreed with me about what I had thought that I thought about what I had found here, but I wanted to to see. And so he must be right because he said I was right. So he was great. So yeah. um, I'm just joshing. But uh, no, he's really great. He's really great. He brings a great lawyer's analytical mind um, to his work, to his journalism, to his libertarianism, you know, he's got that deep education and background and another guy that, I mean, who wouldn't predict that he'll be one of our great fellows here at the Institute for the next generation going forward here, man. And we'll continue to be a leader of new young libertarians who want to know what the hell is going on around here. 
Patrick was definitely one of the first people uh, who, in my sort of circles, had their eye on a potential conflict with China over Taiwan. Because originally mm -hmm. I was so obsessed with the terror war, I said, the wars, it's going to be probably Iran. Then they flirted with North Korea. So hearing him say uh, China over Taiwan, that was just shocking. I really hadn't heard that. And then um, th there's a Ukrainian defense missile, according to Lloyd Austin, that went astray, unfortunately, November 15th of 2022, and killed two civilians in Poland. Mm -hmm. Now, NATO country, uh, you'd think we're declaring war against Zelensky, but they were pretty quiet about this. They didn't come out and say, look what Putin did to Poland. They were real quiet. Then they came out and Lloyd Austin said it was a Ukrainian defense missile. And I said, oh, my gosh, the war is it's just to weaken Russia and China probably is there uh, is probably next on the victim list. It, it was just his insight that the fact that he was able to say that when China was not uh, controlling the news. It was a lot of these sort of army white papers, ones called uh, Broken Nest, d deterring China's invasion of, uh, you know, an independent Taiwan. So I, ju I just got to uh, give it to Patrick on that. And I have not watched this Israel's Jeffrey Epstein, but I wonder if it's about Ellie Cohen, the guy who was part of uh, the Levon affair, who would have these parties in Syria and invite prostitutes and uh, get these Syrian officials uh, on camera in compromising positions and feed the material back to Mossad. I'm not sure, but I will definitely watch that, Patrick. Well, how Palestine became Israel. <laughs> There's sure a, a hell of a title for a thing. And it, that's not the same thing. That's a separate episode, right? That is a separate episode. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that looks interesting as hell too. I bet you that's important. And now that I remember about it, he's the one who introduced me to you because you guys were hosting a show together here for a while. And then he quit, and I had to go hunt you down. Well, whatever happened to that other guy? He didn't quit, right? Remember that? Yeah, uh, I forget. I, I think he just uh, wanted to uh, make sure he was able to get his own practice, um, which he now has, and yeah. he's doing very well as yeah. a uh, as a lawyer. But um, yes, thanks to Ernest Hancock for having me and you on the show that same day, or else we probably would have never run into Oh, that's other. what it was. And then I said, hey, that's that guy that I couldn't find who was with that other guy who quit the show. That's yes. good. And here we are. Next we have, oh, Will Porter. Uh, Will yeah. puts out a weekly uh, summary of all the stuff, which I love sending out. Uh, tell us about Will Porter. Well, he's great. He's been around for a few years. Um, he uh, also helps out somewhat at antiwar.com from time to time. And uh, he was assistant at uh, or a co-host, I mean to say, with um, Kyle on Conflicts of Interest for a while there. Although I believe he stopped. Maybe he still is from time to time. Um, and then, yes, he is. He, he still writes for us. And then he also... Um, does our weekly email list, um, which is great. And that reminds me, I owe him a phone call. Actually, Will, I tried to call you, but you didn't answer. Um, but I will. Uh, I need to uh, do that again and get a hold of him. It's been a little while since we talked, but um, I was actually hoping that we could get him to figure out a way if he could do that email daily instead of weekly. Yeah, so this is um what's it what this week at the Libertarian Institute. So you get 
the main articles with a brief summary. You get the headline. This way, uh, you get uh, an idea of what we're up to. Because I know it's rough to keep up with every single day. So many different uh, websites to keep in touch with. But yeah. that is uh, one of uh, Will's many great uh, contributions. He was great. Uh, but right after uh, Ukraine was in the headlines, uh, I he was the first person I went to. to you know, uh, what was... Uh, uh, I asked him about the Minsk agreements. I asked him who Poroshenko was, what the deal is with this group, Right Sector... And, um, you know, the Maidan revolution. So uh, Will is just brilliant on uh, uh, on all these. Tell us about Tommy oh, you know Selman. Let, oh. let me stop for a minute. That reminds me, this is a slightly off topic, but, you know, antiwar.com and the Institute are very close anyway, and same difference in a lot of ways. Um, and our very good friend Jason Ditz at antiwar.com has had a little bit of health problems and people might have noticed he'd been falling off a little bit lately and without being specific because i couldn't be specific but uh i can tell you that he's on the mend that he's doing much better and so um people who like sending well wishes and prayers and those kinds of things for the great jason Ditz, he's you know was our news editor before dave DeCamp and is still assistant news editor at antiwar.com or maybe he's senior news editor now at antiwar.com but um he's had some major improvements lately and so uh we'll be very happy to welcome him back into the swing of things full time and so everybody keep their eye out for him he'll be back working with us much more here in the very near future i believe so that is very good to hear yeah uh, tell us about the host of the year zero podcast tommy yeah well he's just a good old friend of mine is what he is he's from um i forgot which town but somewhere over there near port Aransas or something and on the gulf coast and um he was a long-haul truck driver and um i guess got into podcasting from that and i forgot his story about how he became such a libertarian um but he's just a good guy man and and um i think he's no longer doing long-haul trucking um, so he's staying around the house more often and, and doing his show more often. I know he just interviewed, uh, Matthew Ho and, uh, who was it that he had on? God, I got Biden brain so bad. He had on somebody with Matthew Ho the other day. Um, I was just listening to the, uh, beginning of it earlier. Anyway, I do got what Biden's got, man. Sorry about that. But anyway, he's just great, man. He's a great libertarian and, um, you know, he does these really deep dives on subjects like he's an Orthodox Christian. So he had kind of a real interest and in kind of a, a, um, a bunch of deep research and interviews about what was going on in the schism between the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. I hope I got that right. That's the split. One of them friendly to Russia, one of them friendly to the West. Um, the OCU and the OUC, I think of that. So you, you keep it straight, kid. Leave me alone. Um, but anyway, he he's got it all straight, and and uh, you know uh, was very interested in that, and and did a bunch of great interviews about that, and um, and it's just a, a sample of the the kind of guy that he is, who um, has like a real deep interest in um, you know. Uh, I'm not sure what all his conclusions were because I honestly don't listen enough to shows. So I'm spending so much time reading all the time. If I'm listening to shows. It's Daryl Cooper mostly, but um, I uh, oh, what was I going to say? It was um, something about something that I know that he covered a lot. 
I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Environmental um, social governance or ESG? Oh, yeah. No, but I'm glad you said that. Right. Yeah. He's a great expert on that ESG stuff. All that corporate um, communist kind of uh, WEF stuff is something that he I interviewed him about that actually a couple of months ago because um, he's been really out on front on all of that stuff. Um covering that so no that's not what i was thinking but i'm glad that you said that go ahead chime in whatever else you got in mind that um i had something right on the tip of my tongue there and then i went on a tangent and got lost um, esg is just really important because it shows that there are co-conspirators with the state in the private sector whether it's like going back to the house of morgan and the rockefeller house so it's not necessarily that people in the private sector are necessarily good it's that the private sector creates incentives, which means that if they want to get rich, they can't get a penny out of our pockets unless they're pleasing customers through a process of voluntary exchange. But if there's a state, that gives the evil people in the world a mechanism to gain wealth at the expense of others, not only if they please customers through good customer service, providing products and providing services. So that's why even having a state at all, you will get nefarious actors uh, occupying the state. Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, the Smedley Butler has been talking about this, uh, no, talked about this uh, going back to the First World War. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, and I remembered yes, what I was going to say. Is huge. I was going to say about, um, I know he studied um, Alexander Dugan, the Russian philosopher that some people say has so much influence over Vladimir Putin which I found a lot of stuff saying that that's a bunch of crap and totally overblown. And I don't know what Tommy concluded about that, like as far as his influence on Putin or not, but I know that he did a deep dive into the guy's whole philosophy and like read a few of his books and interviewed a bunch of experts about it. You know what I mean? He's that kind of guy. He wants to do these deep, deep dives on narrow subjects like that and really find out a lot about one thing. So he, that's the kind of quality of, of podcasts that you get from Tommy. It's really great stuff. Tell us about Richard Booth. Oh, man. Well, uh, listen, I mean, I, I don't know where to begin. I guess just quite simply, he is the most important Oklahoma City bombing researcher in America. And he's, well, or whatever, tied with Jesse Trinidou. And I guess he would say, too, with Wendy Painting, um, that these are the most important people getting to the bottom line truth about what happened behind the Oklahoma City bombing. And... Richard came to me because I'm not a kook and yet I am interested in Oklahoma city. And I always have been since 95. And he said, wow, I like you because here I saw a thing that you did where you said that someone that like a lot of people on our side, like, and quote, you said, you didn't find that person very credible instead of just glomming on because it seemed to fit your point of view. And I, that's nice because in the Oklahoma bombing field, there's just, there are a lot of kooks who are interested in it and are willing to just jump to conclusions like crazy and cite sources that aren't truly reliable and stuff like that. So here he's just like me where he's got this, you know, roll your eyes, somewhat of a kook so-called subject um, that it, where there really is some terrible truth behind that that was covered up. It's a true conspiracy theory, what happened at Oklahoma City. So what does a guy like Booth do with that? You know, he's trying to do good journalism. He's trying to get it right, not come up with what can he say that'll sound right to somebody and get him a click or some crap, you know? So, um, you know, he's got a day job. He's not reliant on somehow appealing to people. He just is so careful and just wants what's true. So... 
turns out that just like me, he had a collection of Oklahoma City bombing documents. Only unlike me, he had gotten around to organizing them all. I just had everything Jesse Trenendu had ever sent me over a bunch of years, basically sitting in a folder that I was going to get to someday. Or people who promised me that they were going to do it for me were going to get to someday and never did. Um, and then here, Booth already did the work. And he had his own website set up. That was this weird Drupal something or other or whatever website. And I just said, oh, nuts to all that. I'll just have my guy, Harley, which he's the unsung hero of our institute, our, our webmaster, Harley um, Abbott from expanddesigns.com is his um, webmaster business uh, website. But I said, well, I'll just have my guy fix all that up and we'll just put it on the institute. And so if anybody just goes to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, they can find, I'll take a little bit of the credit for the collection of documents there. Although I think that actually probably 90 something percent of them are from him. And most of what I had, he already had anyway, redundant, whatever. But anyway, it's Booth's great collection of all the best documents and all the best articles and no bullshit at all about the Oklahoma city bombing. And it's really good stuff. And, and it's, you know, I don't know. I got a lot on my plate. I don't think about it every day the way it used to be, but this is still an extremely important subject to me. I probably will end up doing another gigantic podcast about it in two years, the way I did on Waco this year. Um, it's been very important to me since the day of. I knew something was up since the day of, Keith. And I've been like this. And I'm just so proud to have Booth as part of our team as part of the Institute and, um, and to have that archive that the, the truth about Oklahoma city, that archive available for people to see on our site, because it's so important what happened there. And, and, you know, quite frankly, what the feds were allowed to get away with covering up there is, uh, it's just a hell of a story, man. And one day he's going to write a book about it. Actually, he has written much of a book about it. I think it's okay to say he has written much of a book about it, but he doesn't want to publish it till he's done. And he's not going to be done until he has some more answers and he's not there yet. So he's being very patient. He's not going to put it out with a bunch of open questions. He wants to get more riddles solved before he puts it into print. Um, but he, you know, I'm sure what he eventually comes up with will be the most important Oklahoma bombing book anybody ever wrote. And he's certainly the guy who I would go to if I have any question about any detail or fact about it. Like me on foreign policy is him on just this one bomb in this day and the guys behind it and the cover up and everything. And which I used to be like that. Like imagine me, Keith, and this is, he was from Oklahoma city, right? So he's been like this all along too. So now imagine me, if I never got into all this council on foreign relations, you know, John Burt stuff. And if I'd never got into Ramondo and then anti-war, you know, anti-war.com and all this libertarian stuff and spent the last 20 years on foreign policy. What if I just been stuck on only the Oklahoma city bombing this whole time? Yeah. That's who Richard Booth is. Okay. He's me. If I only had this one subject this whole time, he's just, yeah, dude. Um, he's just great. He's just great. I'm, I, I, he's who I wish I also was, but I can't be, you know? Yeah. Well, tell us about Hunter Dorensis, our editor. 
Well, I mean, I guess he's a former journalist now. He did original journalism for a very long time or a very long time, a couple of years, few years there um, for the national interest, which is, you know, the uh, a very important uh, publication of the National Interest Foundation. And um, uh, he's written a ton of, of really great original pieces for the American Conservative Magazine as well. And he's our editor. He's the guy who puts thumbs up or thumbs down on all the submissions to our site and is responsible for getting them all posted, all those original articles. And, um, you know, he's our um, doing my job, basically, making sure that the Institute website looks good every day, that we're running only good stuff. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, he also has other jobs, such as he helps to run bringourtroopshome.us, which is probably equivalent to antiwar.com as the most important project on the entire internet there, uh, pushing the Defend the Guard legislation and the entire kind of anti-war right uh, on non-interventionism there with the Defend the Guard uh, movement and all of that. So Dan McKnight and that whole group, um, Diego Rivera and all those guys, and uh, Hunter helps them run that. So, and Hunter was the one who introduced me to the Nye committee. The committee investigated the financial and banking interests that underlay the United States involvement in World War One and the operations and profits of the industrial and commercial firms supplying munitions to the Allies and to the United States. My heavens, did that take us down a rabbit hole? I think we had planned for probably a uh, 15 minute uh, discussion or so, and we ended up getting into the First World War, Arthur Ponsonby's, uh, you know, history of deception from the media in the First World War and uh, the press. All the way we went through Pearl Harbor myths and everything. Hunter is just terrific on uh, on these historical issues, which really give you an important insight because sometimes you might think, well, uh, the lesson from Iraq and Afghanistan is we can't elect neocons when they run for office, so watch out for Nikki Haley. Well, yes, watch out for Nikki Haley. But anytime you give people a monopoly on violence and they have so much power, going back to, I don't know, the Genghis Khan empire, they tend to exploit vulnerable people in such a way that they wouldn't be able to if there was a free market or at least no legal double standard. So I think Hunter's just terrific with his uh, historical analysis. Yep. And he really has... Um... I don't know how many of these he's written off the top of my head, how many of these he's written for our Institute. I think at least two or three, but if people want to look at his uh, archive at the American conservative magazine, he has these great, uh, you know, long form uh, essays, historical essays about the old right and all these different uh, historical figures that they publish in the long form magazine. You know what I mean? Not just online um, at the American conservative.com, but actually, you know, are featured essays in their magazine that comes out every month, which not everything online goes into the magazine. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. a whole separate process there. So he writes these, and I should say this though, everything in the magazine ends up online though. So you can find it all now, you know what I mean? But it, it's really great stuff. He's a brilliant guy. Tell us about Kim Robinson. Oh, I love Kim. Kim is our Australian friend. He's an MMA fighter. You can see on his tweets, him training and stuff. He's a tough guy. and um, But he's a total sweetheart, man. And a, a real, like, 
you know, he might, we should really make him a fellow or something, right? I just, I'm so, I'm sorry, Kim. I've been lazy about that. We should make him uh, something official at this site. I publish him all the time. Um, he's like the moral conscience of the site, isn't he? He's such a deep guy, man. He writes this, um, like really thoughtful stuff and, um, and really deep analysis of, of all the different wars and like historical, you know, deep historical stuff, as well as like social commentary, movies and, um, you know, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, man. He's good. And I think he's, um, he exemplifies maybe not attack the right from the right. That's not exactly correct, but it's um, be a tough guy dove. How about that? You know what I mean? Like here's yeah. this beast Nick with his, you know, his arms are as big around as my torso. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. like um, he makes, he makes for a good pacifist. You know what I mean? All right. Well, those are the 16 names I have. Those are our primary contributors. Of course, we have tons of other people who uh, join us at the site. Before we go into the last segment, which is how I want uh, the audience to get an idea of what you do, is there uh, anything else you want to tell people about uh, the Institute, why it's uh, important to donate? And by the way, it's tax deductible. We're a 501c3. Yeah, well, let's start with that. I mean, you can write this off on your IRS of what you give to us. You don't have to give to them. Um, you know, there's also a thing. Oh, hell, I should have done my research and had this ready. I'll, I'll figure this out for real and do a write up about this. It's kind of complicated. But there's a, a thingamajig where um, I think if see if I can explain this right. This mostly applies to people who are retired from high salary jobs at big companies, as opposed to like, say somebody who made a good living running their own business. These are people who they tend to have this certain kind of retirement account where they're required to give a certain amount of money to charity every year. And I forgot what the dang thing is called, but there's this one very nice gentleman who gave us some stock last year. And I believe is going to, uh, he emailed me again and said he's going to give us some stock again this year as well. And that's part of his, um, God dang it, I'm sorry. There's like a, I think it's like the AGS or some kind of dang thing. I'm sure that's not right. But something like that, it's called some three-letter dang thing, which is the um, these certain retirement accounts where people have to give a certain amount of money every year or pay some stupid tax penalty. So you want to pay extra to the ward party or you want to help me pay Keith so he can keep working? And you know what? That's something that I'm very proud to say and and um, happy to like explicate. And I got Tom Woods can vouch for me. He's sitting on my board of directors. Um, and and I got you know uh, I we have a great board, a great accountant and secretary, and everybody running this. It's not just me. We have real professional business oriented gentlemen running this thing and making sure that it's run well. And we just don't spend money on anything but payroll and a little bit of like research materials or like just a, a little bit of travel expenses or something like that. But essentially, unlike Cato, we have no giant glass castle in Washington, D.C. that we have to pay a billion dollars for and all these kinds of things. Um, but we have a great team and we publish a bunch of great books and we clearly have made our mark and are continuing. You know, we have a path for, as you just said, 16 guys uh, and one great lady. Um, 
all like really working hard and moving forward with their work and and trying their very best to do their very best for liberty and for this society and for this institute and everything. Every one of these people that we talked about today are the promise of the future of this institute. And so like, I don't know who's better. And and, and you, you can rely on me. Like I'm not doing anything with your money. It's making my payroll every month. And in fact, I'll complain about myself that my eyes are a little bit bigger than my stomach and I keep hiring people and I keep giving people raises and stuff and I have to knock that out. I have to stop. I'm not hiring anyone else and I'm not giving anyone any more raises. I don't care well how bad the dollar inflates and devaluates. Um, I, um, I am, but I, I, I honestly am, am, um, a very conservative, uh, with our budget and, and, uh, virtually all of it goes just directly to absolutely the most reasonable overhead, like payroll and nothing else. And, um, and I guess I'll go ahead and say, as long as I'm ranting, we need more really rich guys, you know, our, 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 uh, you know, 10 and 20 and 50 and a hundred dollar and $500 donations. Those are so great. And we really appreciate it. And we rely on those a hundred percent. We really do. But we got a couple of guys who give us 10 and 20. We need a lot more of those. We need people who are willing to, um, you know, people who made their money in the Bitcoin, uh, uh, bubble or the, now it's a gold bubble. You hear the gold price today was like over 2000. Um, people who, um, you know, I know a guy who made so much money in his construction company, building houses around Austin during the construction boom of the COVID inflationary bubble that he's now building a vert ramp. It's 150 feet wide. Wow. Which is going to be the most fantastic vert ramp anybody ever skated. And it's going to, I'm not blowing out the spot. I'm just telling you it's somewhere in central Texas. Okay. But, and I can't wait for this thing, but I'm just saying there are people out there who have the wealth to build 150 foot wide vert ramps. There are people out there with the wealth to help keep the libertarian Institute going. And it would seem like people who are successful in capitalism would want to keep the free marketeers out there fighting. Like you need, even if I'm no real businessman, you need me and my team out there to be the vanguard of the pro free market movement in this country. Guys who are really willing to fight. A guy like me, who's willing to keep Keith Knight out there explaining why voluntary exchange in a free market is what makes the world go round. That's my call for people to support the Libertarian Institute. So I just want to uh, do a response video with you. We have a 58-second video that we're going to go through, and I'd like you to response respond video, to okay. it. Um, uh, just because we talked about uh, everyone's contributions, I want to give people a real uh, idea of what we actually bring to the table by having you respond to this great, intelligent gentleman. Get ready to learn something. You actually measure morality in a war as which side has more civilians dead? That's that's the measure, not which side is trying to destroy the other, which side started the war. That That's irrelevant. Far more Japanese died than Americans died. Almost no American civilians died at all in World War II. So is America uh, the wrong party? 
or what I asked at Oxford, and I asked, when in the history, when in the history of the modern world, has there been a conflict between a police state and a free state? And it was the free state that was the one that made the war. There's been no example of that. Wars are either between two police states or a police state and a free state. Two free states don't go to war. And whenever there is a free state and a police state at war, it's the police state that has made the war. That's so true, cool. true or false. Whenever there's a war between a free state and a police state, the police state has initiated the war in modern history. Well, you're talking about like George W. Bush's police state that invaded Iraq, for <laughs> yeah. example. That's one of them. Gaddafi okay. was the first one that came to mind uh, for me because uh, I had always heard that Colonel Gaddafi was uh, the, the real dictator. It's like, well, Saddam, uh, but going back to the 80s, you know, they had had this uh, these troubles in Libya. Uh, but apparently uh, Barack Obama uh, launching a NATO conflict against Gaddafi, that doesn't count as a free state. Me, what Keith. would you say to the Prager you? Audience. I never I never denied that Barack Obama was a dictator, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's totally unfair. But uh, it's not true that Gaddafi started that war. <laughs> yeah. It was Obama that started it all right. I know uh, Dennis Prager would pretend to believe that America's a free society and a democracy, and that was his point there. And, of course, he can just exclude all the wars America starts, and then that way he can claim whatever he wants. Just like he could pretend that, well, yeah, everybody agrees that it was perfectly acceptable to firebomb all these Japanese cities to the ground and use nuclear weapons on them and the rest. Who's got anything contrary to say about any of that? Nobody ever I ever heard of. Obviously, that's 100% clear American consensus. So once you know that it's okay to nuke Nagasaki, Keith, well, then obviously Israel can do whatever they want to the Goyim in the Gaza Strip. Ipso facto, man. Case closed. And no. by the way, who's trying to eradicate the other? This militia with AKs, and they don't even have RPGs. They have, what do you call them? SPGs? Shotgun-propelled grenades? These these Yassin launchers, have you seen them? It's like a shotgun that shoots a grenade off the tip somehow whenever they engineered that damn thing. Um, they're going to eradicate Israel, the first world nation armed by the United States. Meanwhile, who's eradicating who? We got 15,000 dead. We got, on one hand, they deny it, sort of. On the other hand, they openly declare that they want to completely cleanse the Gaza Strip of Palestinians. And we all know that they want the West Bank what they call Judea and Samaria, and I don't mean they like all Israeli Jews, I mean the right-wing factions who control the Israeli government, call Judea and Samaria and are determined to colonize and conquer completely. Well, they've conquered it, but to colonize and cleanse completely. Gaza's a side issue, and yet they're already talking about, we want to push them all into the Sinai. We want Egypt to take them all. They let two, I can't believe this, man, they let two Israeli officials write an article in the Wall I'm like clenching my fist here. They let two Israeli officials write an article in the Wall Street Journal saying, you take them. It's time to get rid of all the Palestinians. You Americans should take the two million Gazans. 
and the rest of Europe and around the world. We'll just, we'll take 25,000 and spread them to different countries around the world till they're all gone. And they're just talking about that openly, completely destroying Palestine. Dennis Prager doesn't care about that. And look, I mean, does anybody over, uh, anybody under the age of 65 care what Dennis Prager says about anything? Does anyone, anyone your age or my age or younger look at Dennis Prager and go, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I remember that guy had a show on TV, a kind of daytime talk show in the early 90s. His catchphrase was, he'd say, I hope you, I made you think a second time. Like, does anyone think that that guy's honest? Everything he said is obviously just propagandistic crap. None of it is, is, you know, able to withstand scrutiny at all. And, you know, there's a video of me debunking David, uh, um, Dennis Prager years ago, Keith, from like 2008, or maybe, I think so. It could have been 12 or 11. I think it was a, I think it was before I went to L.A., and this was the moral case for Israel that he makes where he says, so. if and the, Hamas yes. puts their weapons down, there will be peace. If Israel puts yeah. their weapons down, there will be genocide. And then, but the thing is that, um, I wish that the guy who had made the YouTube of that had asked me first, I would have edited it because what it is, is it's just a segment from my radio show. And so it starts out like I'm smoking cigarettes. Welcome back. You guys, you can't hear it on the recording, but live and in my studio, there's music playing. I'm coming in from the break. I got bumper music. I'm smoking a cigarette. Hey, how's everybody doing? It takes, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm blabbing for a while and I'm saying, oh, you know, your dad or your uncle Bob sends around these right wing emails and whatever. It, and I'm just stumbling around and I'm not, like really prepared this is um i had taken a couple of notes but i was not i was not making a youtube i was just talking about it on my radio show one day and so um i wish that i had had a second chance to do it or at least that i had had a chance to edit some of the stumbling bumbling stuff at the beginning but and you tell me keith i haven't seen it in forever you tell me if if it withstands scrutiny now. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's mostly right uh, compared to that guy. Um, and I do remember that at the end, he's holding up or he shows on there, uh, holding up. That was Netanyahu at the UN a couple of months ago. Prager shows a graphic of Israel at the end of his thing where it's all just one cut. See right there where they just showed it right there. You could see the West Bank cut out of it, right? By the end of the thing, there's no more West Bank. By the end of the thing, it's all Israel. And he just makes it completely clear. This is what the law calls genocide. And I don't like to throw that term around all the time because usually people seem to mean it in like only a hyperbolic sense. And quite frankly, it does sound like you're talking about something like the Holocaust. And the problem, sort of just like with what he just said about firebombing Japan, where like, now that that's the standard, anything short of that, in in his argument, is acceptable. Um, but in in the case of calling something a genocide, anything short of the Holocaust couldn't possibly amount to the to a genocide. But that can't be right because that was a worst goddamn genocide, and certainly a very long time. But we look at like what happened in Rwanda, where hundreds of thousands were killed, where the Hutus went after the Tutsis there. Um, and, 
people call that a genocide. It was an attempt to eradicate an entire kind of people off the planet. And then there's this Rome convention where, you know, this isn't like, I don't know, just like your opinion. It's the, the law as was passed or the, this treaty that was signed and agreed upon that defines genocide in such a way where I think you could include, for example, Keith, what just happened in Artsakh. That's what the Armenians call it. The, it's known to the world mostly in, under the Azerbaijani name, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was this small Armenian enclave inside Azerbaijan. And just two months ago, the Azerbaijanis marched in there and they cleansed that entire region and kicked everybody out, essentially at bayonet point, leave or we'll kill you. And then the people left. It's what the Israelis would say. They left voluntarily. <sighs> yeah. Leave or die. So they chose to live and leave, but they completely cleansed Nagorno-Karabakh of Armenians. They went in there, started completely, you know, moving people into the homes, renaming the streets. It's over. It's Azerbaijan, 100%. It's no longer Armenian, an Armenian enclave in any way. That is not a genocide in the sense of, of Treblinka and, you know, pulling the exhaust pipe up to the warehouse. But it's something like the Trail of Tears. It's something like um, what's defined as genocide in the Rome Convention. And it's what maybe what appears to be happening in Gaza now. I don't, I, I look, I don't think that's altogether clear. Quite frankly, I, I, it's a fluid situation too. I mean, if Biden called Netanyahu and said, oh, you're letting everybody from the North move back to the North now, he wouldn't be able to say no to that, right? The, the USA empire is in charge over there at the end of the day. Um, and, the, and the Egyptians have said, hell no. In fact, I have an article here. I haven't read it yet, but I have. It's by Matthew Petty at Responsible Statecraft. And it's about, thank goodness, that the Egyptian evil sock puppet military dictatorship is standing firm against their puppet master, America, and saying, and I don't know exactly what Biden is telling them or Blinken is telling them, but he, they're standing up to the Israelis. The Israelis are saying, we want to push all the Palestinians into Sinai. And the Egyptians are saying, no effing way are you doing that. Not And of course, the Zionists go, oh, yeah, because they don't want them. Because what? They're all diseased, horrible terrorists. No, it's because the Egyptians are not. Even the sock puppet dictatorship is not trying to abet the final cleansing of the Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. And, you know, this could escalate. And, and what's going on in the West Bank right now ain't funny neither. I mean, they are cleansing. I, I, I interviewed Michael Tracy. He went there to the West Bank and he went on a tour with Israeli settlers he went to the, to, he met Palestinians in East Jerusalem, but on the West Bank, on the rest of the West Bank, he went out there embedded with Israeli settlers and with an anti-settler rabbi who gave him tours around the West Bank and showed him where these Bedouins had been cleansed from their villages. Um, five or six of them just over the past few weeks while this is all going on in the Gaza Strip. They're trying to kick more and more Palestinians out of their homes and off of their property on the West Bank what they call, again, what they call Judea and Samaria, which they plan to one day finish stealing hell or high water. And so it's a real damn ugly situation over there, man. Um, and, and Dennis Prager is a liar. Dennis Prager, you know, 
There's another one. I don't know. I, I keep seeing people on Twitter challenging random people to debate me. Like I didn't volunteer to debate anyone about this. Somebody wants me to debate Josh Eagle. How about I'll stomp Josh Eagle into the ground and then wipe him off the bottom of my shoe. I'll tell you who I'll debate. I'll debate Dennis Prager. I'll debate Ben Shapiro. I debated Will Chamberlain. I thought it went all right, but that was more of a podcast debate. You want to do like a real Soho forum type thing? I'll take Dennis Prager and mop the floor with him. I think Dennis Prager is a liar. And I don't think that Dennis Prager can make the case for Israel without simply being completely full of it and trying to make people believe things that aren't true in order to justify things that are patently wrong. And so, you know, we'll have Gene so, hosted at the forum. Come on, Dennis, what's up? So about this uh, challenge, there's never been a free state that declares war on a police state. A free state, by his definition, you just means, I guess, an English-speaking either country that's friendly to NATO or one that Biden you know, speaks to. There's Israel no attacked, objective metric. Lebanon was a democracy in 2006 when Israel attacked him. All right, so we have the case of Lebanon and Israel. When it comes to the case of, I don't know who initiated the conflict in Serbia, but I know there was a bombing campaign for 70 did. days. <laughs> okay, so we can use that as well, a uh, that, no, look, that, one that's a great example of, you know, uh, what can be a very a bad problem of democracies. You had ethnic demagogues all around, and then you had like one last big election where ethnic demagogues won in all the different parts of the place. And that was the end of the democracy there. Nobody thought, oh, the other guy won. We'll be cool and better luck next time. Everybody started separating. I think it, so it was very much like the, the first major blow was struck by the democratically elected government of Croatia and Slovenia. They were the ones who decided to, to secede. And that was really the Croatians who launched the first major cleansing campaign against the Serbs. So, you know, I don't know if you call Croatia a free state at that time, but certainly Germany and the United States did. Well, and he certainly considers uh, Germany a uh, the police state in the Second World War, whereas Britain on September 3rd of 1939, Neville Chamberlain was the one who actually declared war against Germany. So that's a, another example. There was no attack, to my understanding, on August 4th of 1964 in the Gulf of Tonkin. Of so that could be another example of a free state um, starting a war with a police state. Of course. There's just so many that I couldn't believe he said it with all this confidence. Well, look, uh, America's been the dominant world empire since 1945. Hell, maybe yeah. since 44, <laughs> you know? Um, so, and, and look, we haven't stopped fighting wars ever since. And even in the case of Japan, if China formed a blockade around Taiwan, they'd obviously say that that's a declaration of war. Well, the U.S. had the Export Control Act of 1940, which was a blockade and the freezing of Japanese assets. All, all this took place before Pearl Harbor. So, of course, you have to get into what defines and a the declaration. Flying tigers of too. Training up the not just training up the Chinese Air Force and, and mm -hmm. selling them planes, but openly bragging about it. Hey, look at us. We're selling planes to the Chinese to fight the Japanese with, they said. You know? Yeah. All right. 
Uh, so unfortunately, uh, Dennis, we uh, t took on your challenge, and uh, we'd like to uh, have you uh, debate either at the Soho Forum or the Libertarian Institute. I would be happy to moderate because I am a big fan of a lot of what uh, Prager University does on this issue. However, I think they are incorrect. But like I gave at the beginning, with uh, my research on Zev Yabotinsky, the Iron Wall, the research on Ergon, Haganah, and Stern, I once believed exactly what Dennis Prager did, and I have uh, changed my opinion. So I would love to host that debate. Scott Horton, anything else uh, people need to know about the Libertarian Institute before we head out? We're going to be here. We've got three great books coming out within a week of me saying this. Um, we published two earlier this year. The Great China Threat and Lori Calhoun's uh, Questioning the COVID Company Line. All five of these join um, the other eight as uh, great stocking stuffers. Um, the, uh, I get that right? No, I didn't. Uh, the other nine uh, great stocking stuffers are, are great 13 books that we put out this year. I suck at arithmetic while I'm talking. Leave me alone. Anyway, the point is that we publish great books. And if you go to libertarianinstitute.org slash books, you can find them. And if you're just very, very patient with us, you will be able to get Domestic Imperialism by Keith Knight. And you will also get um, Diary of a Psychosis by Tom Woods and Last Rites by Jim Bovard and uh, have all those as presents for your people. And if you like what we're doing, you believe in what we're doing, then please drop by libertarianinstitute.org slash donate and uh, kick down. And we've got great kickbacks, mostly in the form of books for you um, for uh, as thank you premiums for those who help to support our endeavor here. And so thank you. I appreciate it very much. So here's what you do. You, you go on Twitter and you check out, well, uh, we did get some news recently in the last hour. Is that Breaking real? News. Henry Kissinger dies at 100. The diplomat exercised no an unparalleled control All right. over U.S. Well, this is the Washington Post's 20 million wow. follower account. So maybe he's faking it, but I certainly hope not. Treat yourself to a nice Jack and Jim on the rocks. Enjoy this moment and head over to libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. What I love about the site is you can just start at the homepage, go to our search function here and just type in anything regarding agricultural subsidies, minimum wage, conscription, Ukraine, uh, antitrust laws, and you will be able to go on for days. Scott and Connor have written about uh, what Kissinger has been up to in his last days. So uh, yes, check out libertarianinstitute.org. Scott, any comments on that before we head out? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure uh, what to say other than now he's dead like a hell of a lot of other people, um, which not that he would know anything about that. Um, no, look, look, this guy's the butcher of Vietnam. The worst thing he ever did, Keith, was he went on a secret mission and he employed a woman named Anna Chenault to go and rat to the South Vietnamese that LBJ was talking with the North and it, in secret talks. And it blew up those talks. The South Vietnamese freaked out. The talks were destroyed and the election was that fall and that was it and it was over. Nixon ran on, at, at the moment that happened, Nixon was running on, he has a secret plan to end the war, which he did, but that meant extending it for three years before winding the damn thing down and finally ending it under his successor, Gerald Ford. So 
I mean, Henry Kissinger got millions of people killed there with that. Anyone can look that up. Her name was Anna Chenault and, you know, um, Chenot or wherever you say it in French. Um, and there's audio of LBJ and boy, he's, he's one to know too. There's audio of LBJ on the phone with a Republican Senator friend of his saying, this is treason. They ought not to be doing this. And then the Republican says, I know, Mr. President, I know. But they didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. He let them get away with it. And that was part of how they won that election was Nixon ran on the secret plan to end the war. Imagine if people had known that Nixon had gone and, and uh, Nixon and Kissinger had sabotaged secret peace talks in order to extend the war so that they could run on opposing it. Son of a bitch. And then he also was in charge of the entire secret bombing campaigns of Laos and Cambodia. He gave the green light under Ford for the genocide in East Timor and against all leftists in Indonesia in 1977, I think. No, no, no. Pardon me. 75. Um, yeah, the Suharto meetings with yeah. Gerald Ford, I think, were 75. Right. Um, and... Uh, and he supported Iraq War One, and he supported Iraq War Two. Mr. Realist, Mr. Not a Neocon, supported Iraq War One and Iraq War Two. I don't know if he was bad on Syria. He was less worse than some on Ukraine at first, but then before too long, he said that no, we ought to bring him into NATO and the rest, and had completely fallen in line with the rest of them on that. So. Even his last redeeming quality in his last year on earth, he went ahead and threw in the toilet before he went ahead and sent himself to hell. So that is the kind of analysis you'll get from nowhere except libertarianinstitute.org. Thanks to everyone for watching. Scott Horton, thank you for your time. Thank you, Keith.